0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Some classrooms in the US are trading traditional teaching methods for online courses. Teachers using Khan Academy say the flip allows students to learn at their own pace. Sal Khan founded the nonprofit academy that aims to provide free, world-class education for anyone, anywhere. He's our featured guest in today's show. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. (music) Sal Khan says Khan Academy started as a fun way to connect with his cousin who needed help with her schoolwork. He would make tutorial videos for her and put them up on YouTube.
1: Uh, And and these videos just happened to be public on, on YouTube. And after a few months, it started to be clear that people who were not my cousins were watching. At first, I just started to see the view count go up. Then the comments started to come in.
0: His interest in education began while he was an undergraduate at MIT. He developed math software for children with ADHD and tutored public school students in Boston. After graduating from business school in the late 1990s, he didn't go into education. Instead, he became a hedge fund manager. In this talk, Khan shares the entertaining and inspiring story of how he went from hedge fund manager to CEO of an education platform that serves more than 60 million users in dozens of languages. Here's Sal Khan.
1: So, so I'd like to just start this, and this is a nice uh, in- intimate crowd. Uh, you know, We're a nonprofit with the mission of a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. We're often associated with a collection of videos that I started making for family members uh, over 10 years ago now. Uh, but what we'll talk about is, one, it's much, much more than, than that. Uh, Khan Academy is much more than me. The mission is much more than than just Khan Academy, but it's all about students learning at their own pace, filling in gaps, uh, progressing, remediating what they need, or or accelerating if they need to. You see it it goes well beyond math and science into things like the humanities. There's over uh, 30 subjects, and as was introduced, there's a lot of people using it now. But before we talk more about where we're going and what we hope to do, uh, hopefully together, Uh, I'll I'll talk more about how all this started because it is a a little bit happenstance and and actually the Aspen Ideas Festival plays a a key role in in the story. So in 2004, I was a year out of business school. I was based in Boston. I had just gotten married. And I had family from New Orleans visiting me up in Boston after my my wedding. Uh, I was born and raised in New Orleans. And uh, it just came out of conversation that one of my family members, who was 12 years old, Navia, Uh, was having trouble in math. She had taken a placement exam going into the seventh grade. She didn't do so well on it, and because of that, they put her into a remedial math class. And so when her mom told me that, I I said, hey, that's a pretty big deal, because if you get tracked that way in seventh grade, it could have implications on what you take in high school, what what happens in college, uh, what careers you end up in. So when Nadia came into the room, I said, hey, Nadia, um, I heard you might be having some trouble in math. What's your sense of it? She's like, yeah, I remember the test. It was unit conversion. I just don't understand unit conversion. And so I told Nadia, I am 100% sure that you're capable of understanding unit conversion. How about when you go back to New Orleans, we get on the phone, or we do instant messenger, whatever we need to do, I'm happy to tutor you. And so Nadia agreed. She went back to New Orleans. So every day after work, my day job, I was an analyst at a a small investment firm in in Boston. But every day after work, I'd get on the phone with Nadia. Uh, We would try to go over unit conversion. And those first few weeks, it was really just trying to change her mindset, just trying to make her realize that she was capable. But then slowly but surely, she got unit conversion. Then she got caught up with her class. Then she got a little bit ahead of her class. I started teaching her a little bit of algebra, whatnot. And and, and at that point, I, I became what I call a tiger cousin. And I, <laughs> I called up her school. I'm sure you, some of you educators appreciate these calls. Uh, and I said, you know, I really think Nadia Rahman should be able to retake that placement exam from last year. Uh, they said, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm her cousin. And, and somewhat surprisingly, they let her retake that placement exam. And that same Nadia who, only a few weeks before, was placed into remedial math class after retaking the placement exam, was put into an advanced math class. So I was hooked. I was like, one, I was really enjoying connecting with my my younger cousin uh, on a daily basis. I was kind of forming a bond. Uh, just, Just doing that half an hour a day was able to kind of hopefully make a nice pivot in the direction of her life. So then I started tutoring her younger brothers, Arman and Ali, and then over the next 18 months or so, several things happened. The small firm I was working for, my boss's wife—it was just the two of us. Uh, my boss's wife became a professor at Stanford Law School, so we moved the firm out to Silicon Valley. Uh, but more relevant to this story, word gets around the family that free tutoring is going on. <laughs> and so I find myself every day after work working with about 10, 15 cousins, family friends, uh, all over the cu- all over the country. You know, I was getting on a kind of a conference line and and. Uh, And and one thing I saw, well, one, it was much harder to do it with, you know, 10, 15 cousins, what I was just doing with Nadia. But I saw a consistent pattern that whether it was Nadia, Arman Ali, or all of these other cousins, even the ones that were pretty good students, A or B students, they all had gaps in their knowledge. And so I actually started writing some software for them. My original background was in software to help them remediate those gaps. And I was showing this off at a dinner party in November of uh, 2006 now. And all my friends knew that I had this crazy uh, project with, with my family and I was showing off the software that I had made and, and, and the, di- the host of the dinner party said, his name Zuli Ramzan, I have to give him full credit, he said, hey, this is all cool, Sal, but how are you scaling up your actual lessons? I said, yeah, Zuli, it's tough. I, it's hard to do with 10 cousins what I was doing with one. And he says, I have an idea. Why don't you record some of your lessons as videos and upload them onto YouTube for your family? And I immediately said, no, that's a, a horrible idea. Uh, YouTube is for cats playing piano. <laughs> it is not for serious mathematics. And uh, I, 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 I went home that weekend. I thought about it more. I, I got over the idea that it was not my idea. And I, <laughs> and I decided to give it a shot. And, uh, you know, those first videos, I was just making stuff that, uh, I, my, qu- my cousins were asking a lot of questions about like, uh, logarithms, adding fractions with unlike denominators, dividing decimals, whatever else. And I started putting it up there, and I started telling my cousins, hey, why don't you watch this at, at your own time? And that way, when we get on the phone, we can dig deeper, and, I can, and we can explore a little bit more. And after about a month, uh, I asked them for feedback, and they somewhat famously and backhandedly told me that they like me better on YouTube than in person. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's worth thinking about what they were saying and what they were, were not saying. They weren't saying that they didn't appreciate me in their lives. They actually still liked the phone calls. They liked the fact that they had this connection with a family member, that someone was interested, someone was motivating them. But what they were saying, and even though it seems counterintuitive at first, it actually makes a lot of sense because we've all been learners. The first time that you're trying to learn something, something that you're a little bit intimidated by, it's actually stressful where you have a cousin, a teacher, a parent, no matter how no matter how non-judgmental they're trying to be, those, you, you ask them, so, so why does A lead to B? And you say, like, oh yeah, yeah, it's really easy. You know, A leads to B, C. Just look at this equation, it makes sense, right? And you feel pressure to say, oh, oh yeah, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, you, you don't want them to, you, know, you don't want to waste their time. 12 hours later when you're trying to do it on your own, you're like, what did they say? I don't fully get it. But now you get it at your own time, at your own pace, no judgment. Uh, if you're in algebra and you forgot some of your fifth grade math, no, no fear, no, you know, you can just do it. You don't have to be embarrassed. And so I kept going, and, and these videos just happened to be public on, on YouTube. And after a few months, it started to be clear that people who were not my cousins were watching. <laughs> and at first, I just started to see the view count go up. Then the comments started to come in, and some of those early comments were just, you know, simple thank yous. And, and even that I thought was a pretty big deal. I don't know how much time you all spend on YouTube. Uh, most of the comments are not, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little edgier. <laughs> but then the comments got more intense, things like, um, you know, this is the reason why I didn't fail my algebra class. This was the reason why I now could feel like after retiring from the military, I can go back to college and become an engineer. I remember in those early days, this is now early 2007, I brought my wife over. I was like, this is incredible. Uh, there was a, a mother. who who wrote a message on on YouTube to me saying, uh, both of my sons have a learning disability. This content you're creating is the only way that they're able to keep up with their their class. Uh, Because of that, me and my entire family are praying for you and your entire family. And and so you uh, you could imagine how especially powerful that was for me. You have to remember what I did as a day job. I was an analyst at a hedge fund. I was not used to people praying for me. at least in that way. And, and, and so <laughs> I kept going. You fast forward to 2009. And at this point, there was about 50, 100,000 people who were using the software and the videos on a monthly basis. And this was just a kind of a side project. And I, frankly, had trouble focusing on my day job. It, it was a great job. But I would wake up in the morning and I'd read these letters from people all over the world. I'd say, what else could I make uh, to, to maybe help some of these folks? And I was also still working with my, with my family. And so my wife and I sat down, we're like, it feels like there's something here. It feels like this could be a, a real entity. Uh, and so I set it up as a nonprofit, thinking the social return on investment is, is almost infin- infinite here. And, you know, anytime you, you do anything... Entrepreneurial. I'm sure there's many entrepreneurs in the room here, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. You almost have to have that delusional optimism that, oh, surely you know, this could reach millions one day. And, and surely the social return is so significant, some philanthropist, whoever, uh, uh, might support it. And my wife and I, we had essentially a, a savings for a down payment on a house that we hadn't bought yet. But we're like, okay, we could live off of this for, for, for about a year. Uh, so I, I took that that plunge with with a little bit of that delusional optimism, and I think most entrepreneurs will tell you that your know, your first contact with reality is a little bit harsh. Uh, you know, I, I was already talking to a lot of foundations, and but after meeting four, meeting five, you're like, well, you know, this isn't exactly what we do. Our, our our budget has been allocated for this year, and you could imagine after about four or five months of that, it got pretty stressful. Our first child had just been born. Uh, we were digging into our savings, about five thousand dollars a month. Uh, I was getting a few hundred dollars a month off of PayPal from just people donating $10, $15. If it was any of you, thank you. Um, but but it, was, it was really stressful. I, I remember, you know, May 2010, I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. What have I done to my family? I had a great job. Um, you know, other family members were just, some of them weren't supportive. They didn't know what to make of it. They thought kind of Sal has kind of flaked out making YouTube videos for a living. Uh, and, and it was, frankly, one of those, those darker moments uh, all of a sudden, I, I saw that a $10,000 donation come through. And so I immediately see who it is. Her name is Ann Doer. And I saw that she, she was local in the neighboring town. She was in Palo Alto. We were in Mountain View. And so I immediately email her. And I say, thank you so much for this incredibly generous donation. This is the largest donation that Khan Academy has ever received. If we were a physical school, you would now have a building named after you. And Anne immediately emailed back and says, well, I use your site. Not only my daughters use it, but I also use it myself to understand finance and economics. Uh, and, and I see that we're local. I would love to meet and learn more if you have time. And so we had a lunch in downtown Palo Alto at an Indian buffet restaurant a week later. And over lunch, Anne asks me, so what's your goal here? And I told her, you know, when you fill out the paperwork with the IRS to be a nonprofit, there's a part of the forum that says mission, colon, and they give you a line and a half. And I filled out a free world-class education for anyone anywhere, and Anne said, "Well, that's ambitious. How, how do you see yourself doing that?" And I told her, "You know, to be clear, it's a it's a mission statement. I don't think I'm just going to be able to check it off this weekend and then move on to healthcare." <laughs> I have some ideas, <laughs> but but I I showed her uh, the view count, you know these. At that point, several hundred thousand people were using it. I used to walk around with a notebook of testimonials from people all over the world. I said, you know, what I want to do is make this in all the languages of the world, not just, not just videos, but make it so that anyone can get as much practice as they need, tools for teachers so it could be done in, in conjunction with classrooms to really supercharge personalized learning there as well. And Ann says, well, you know, you've made a surprising amount of progress. I only have one question. How are you supporting yourself? And in as proud of a way as possible, I said, I'm not. <laughs> and so she kind of processes that. We part ways. Ten minutes later, I'm driving into my driveway in, in, in Mountain View, and I get a text message from Ann, and it says, uh, you really need to be supporting yourself. I've just wired you $100,000. Oh, wow. So that was, a, that was a good day, <laughs> just, just a little, little little bit. And, and then, frankly, it was, it was the beginning of a, of a cascade of, of, I guess you could call it better and better days. Uh, a month later, I was running a summer camp uh, in a neighboring town. And the whole reason I was running the summer camp is, you know, some people think that the, the digital is at, in competition with the physical, that it's Amazon.com versus Barnes & Noble's. But for us, or for me at the time, it, it was the opposite. It was how could the digital liberate the physical? If students can practice at their own time and pace, if they can get micro lessons at their own time and pace, it's not that they don't need classrooms or teachers. It's that the classrooms and teachers can do higher order things. They can have Socratic dialogue. They can do more games, simulations, experiments. And so I was running a physical summer camp to see what you could do in this reality. And so I was in the middle of one of these simulations. I had... Six seventh graders playing a game of risk, while the other 20 traded securities based on the outcome of the game of risk. <laughs> it's a good, good game. Maybe we'll do it next year at the, the festival. And, and, and while that was happening, I start getting text messages from Ann, which you can imagine I now take very seriously. <laughs> and, and there were four or five of them, and that w- this is when it gets actually very relevant to where we are right now. Ann wrote, uh, I'm at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I'm in the main pavilion. Bill Gates on stage, last five minutes talking about Khan Academy. So I didn't know what to make of this, so I immediately boot the nearest seventh grader off of a computer, and I start looking for some evidence of, of this event, and after about five minutes, I was actually able to find the footage, and this is what I saw. There's a new a website that uh, I've just been using with my kids recently called Khan Academy, K-H-A-N. Just one guy doing some unbelievable... 15 minute tutorials. My favorite vignette is that guy, uh, Salman Khan. He was a hedge fund guy uh, making lots of money, and he quit to do these little web videos. And so we have moved, I'd say, about 160 IQ points from the hedge fund category into the uh, uh, teaching uh, many, many people in the leveraged way category. So, you know, that was a, that was a good day, uh, the day that his wife let him quit his job. <laughs> So, so y- you could imagine what I, I mean, I, when I saw that I was literally shaking, I, I was, you know, is this real, is this really happening? I actually got nervous, you know, that, that was for Nadia, not, not for Bill Gates, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and then I, I went home that, that evening, I showed my wife that footage, and I mean, Bill Gates is talking about her, and, 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 I, and I said, you know, what do I do now? Do I call him? <laughs> it was, assuming he's not listed. And they, they, they left me in that, that limbo state for about two weeks. Two weeks later, I'm in my walk-in closet, about to record a video. Uh, that, that, that was where, that was Khan Academy headquarters at the time. And uh, I, my cell phone rings. I see it's a Seattle number. I, I answer it. Uh, hello? Uh, hi, this is Larry Cohen. I'm Bill Gates' chief of staff. Uh, you might have heard that Bill's a fan. Yeah, I heard that. And if you're free over the next few weeks, we would love to fly you up to Seattle and learn more about maybe ways that we could, we could work together or maybe support what you're doing. And I was looking at my calendar for the month, <laughs> completely blank. I said, yeah, maybe Wednesday, I gotta cut my nails, do some laundry. But I think I can, I can meet Bill. Uh, so we had that meeting, and it was eerily similar to the meeting with Ann. What would you do with more resources? I said, well, yeah, it's all about personalized learning. If, you know, if we let students learn at their own pace, any student can pretty much learn anything, tools for teachers, internationalized uh, languages of the world. And so all of a sudden, and at around the same time, folks from Google reached out and said, what would you do with more resources? It turns out that a lot of them had been using Khan Academy with their own children. And so all of a sudden, in fall of 2010, uh, Google and the Gates Foundation became the first major donors for Khan Academy to become a, a real organization, get office space, start hiring up a team. And what we immediately started really investing in was that software that I started working on for, for my family. And what you see here are screenshots from our mobile app of what a student might see in, say, an Algebra One class uh, as they're progressing through learning about taking a slope. And what you see on the left is, um, you know, just ha- ha- what is a slope? How do you calculate a slope? And the way it works on Khan Academy is a student would, essentially has unlimited practice there until they really master that concept. And then they might move on to another concept that builds on that. So for example, like that second one where you're graphing the equation of a line, but you need to know what a slope is. And then once you've mastered that, you get as much practice as you need, then you would move on to like, okay, well here you're graphing a systems of equation. And what I just described on some level is common sense. It's the way that you would play a video game. In a video game, you you keep working on level one, and only when you beat the boss, you beat level one, you go to level two. It's the way you learn a musical instrument. You really practice mastering the first piece, and then you move on to the next one and you build on it. But what we point out, this is not the way that a traditional academic model, the one that most of us grew up in, is architected. In a traditional academic model, you you group students initially by age in, in kindergarten, and then later on, middle school age and perceived ability, that's what was happening to Nadia. And you move them all together at a, at a set pace. And what will typically happen, let's say we're all in a, well, let's say we're in, a, in an Algebra one class. Uh, the teacher will give us a lecture on slope. Uh, then we'll go and do some homework. The next day, we'll review that homework. Then there'll be another lecture, homework, lecture, homework that'll go on for about two weeks. And then we'll get a test. And on that test, I might get a 70%, you might get an 80%, you might get a 95%. And even though that test has identified gaps, I didn't know 30% of the material that happened to be on the test. That A student, she didn't know well, that 5% she didn't get right, it might have been a careless error, but it might have been something, something really important. What happens when you have a zero slope or a vertical line? And despite identifying those gaps, the whole class then has to move on to the next concept. Pretty much building on those gaps, expecting me, who couldn't calculate 30% of the slope, to not think about graphing lines or graphing curves or, 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 or whatever else. And to appreciate how absurd that is, uh, imagine if we did other things in our life that way. Say, home building. <laughs> so you, you, you bring the contractor in and you say, we're told by the state we have two weeks to build the foundation. Do what you can. So the contractor does what they can. Maybe it rains, maybe some of the supplies don't show up. After two weeks, inspector comes and says, all right, that part's not quite up to code. Concrete's still wet over there. I'll give it an 80%. And so the the contractor says, great, that's kind of a C. Let's build the first floor. (laughs) Same thing. We got three weeks. Do what you can. Inspector comes after three weeks. Oh, it's a a 90%. Great, let's build the second floor, third floor. And while you're building the third floor, the whole structure collapses. And if your reaction to that is the reaction that we typically have in education, you're like, oh, well, maybe we needed a better, pro- maybe we needed a, a better contractor. Or maybe we needed better materials. Or maybe those materials aren't even cut out to build a four story building. But what was really going on is that you had a, 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 a bizarre process. You're artificially constraining when and how long you have to do something, pretty much ensuring a variable outcome. You take the trouble of identifying the, the gaps, but then you completely ignore them and then you build on top of them. And so, this idea of mastery learning which which is what we've kind of inadvertently fallen into but it turns out it's the oldest form of learning and there's literature on it from Benjamin Bloom from the 70s and 80s that actually you can get 2 sigma improvement 2 standard deviation improvement if students are allowed to fill in their gaps move at their own pace it also leads to another interesting question is all of us, either personally or people in our families or our friends, have experienced this, this notion of, of hitting walls, of a student getting into an algebra class and all of a sudden nothing makes sense, or a calculus class. And a lot of times society kind of says, oh, well, maybe they're just not cut out for calculus. Maybe they're just not cut out for physics. But what we're seeing more and more is, no, it might have, not have anything to do with that. It's just that because they've been pushed along, accumulating those Swiss cheese gaps the entire time, that by the time you go to algebra, you have that Swiss cheese gaps in negative exponents. You see the negative exponents in an equation. There's no way that you're gonna learn it no matter how bright you might be. And so to uh, appreciate what this looks like in classrooms, it's, students letting stu- it's teachers letting students all learn at their own pace. And what I'll show you is some of the energy that we've been seeing in classrooms lately. Uh, especially this this video footage you're going to hear is around a a back-to-school learning challenge, but it's really around this idea of letting students learn at their own time and pace and kind of exercise their agency over their learning.
0: The Learn Storm Progress Tracker is a must. It is the centerpiece of the excitement. If I forgot to do the tracker, oh, they're going to remind me. Fifteen minutes before the end of class, Ms. Grubbs, can you do the tracker? Let's see how much progress you make. And what the tracker does is the numbers just start going up and up. And so then they start clapping. Oh, oh. And then they start jumping up and cheering. And as it goes and it goes and it goes. They're like, oh, I hope we got this score. I hope we got this score, you know. Tapping the thing you know, And the score is. I did. Yep. We we here. Started from the bottom. Now we
1: here. So. so, so one of the exciting things that's developed over the last four or five years is uh, about about five years ago, uh, David Coleman, president of the College Board at the time, the new president of the College Board. Uh, he, he decided that the SAT had to be much more connected to what students are learning in school. When many of us took the SAT, it was kind of this separate thing. It was almost approached approach kind of like an IQ test. But they said, no, should it should be aligned with what you actually learn in school and was actually associated with being college ready. And they had been observing what we had been doing and said, hey, we also want to address this decades old uh, perception and probably reality around inequity around test prep. And so, what if? The College Board and Khan Academy worked together to create the world's best test prep that happened to be free. And for us, the world's best test prep means kind of addressing this. You know, test prep is almost a bad word sometimes. It's like, hey, you know, fake it. Uh, this is how you, uh, you game the system versus actually learning the skills. Well, what we want to do is no. The reason why you're not able to get that SAT question right is because you have gaps in your knowledge, and we actually want to teach you that material. And not only will that make you do better on the SAT in reading or verbal or in writing, but it'll allow you to succeed more in college. And so this next video is a, is a news clip that came out in this on a, little about, a little over a year ago.
0: Today is the last day students around the country will take the SAT in its current form. That's because starting in March, a new test with lots of changes will be there for high schoolers. Here's NBC's Ann Thompson.
1: I wanted to start my own business specializing in robotics.
0: I think I'd like to be a chemist. The first hurdle to achieving those dreams, the SAT. Today is the last day students will be offered the test in its current form. The new SAT promises to be quite different. All high school students like Amelia Taneo and Minkailu
1: Canute, now also have access to free online tutoring from the Khan Academy. The software itself acts like a tutor. It shows you, hey, you should probably work on
0: this. Complete with points and badges. And once you get to like the more advanced stuff, you get like really cool badges. Sounds yeah. like a video game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is this question asking? Students have been practicing
1: for months,
0: with sample tests meant to mirror the new SAT exam beginning in March. And how have you done on the mock SAT? I, I have done well. Um, by the time that I went to mock two, I boosted my I so scored by like by two hundred points. Building confidence along the way to achieve new possibilities in the future. For today, Ann Thompson, NBC News, The
1: Bronx. Yeah. So so what's been exciting about that partnership? It, it it's now, you know, this the the free thing uh, is is now the thing that's most used, it's being used more than all of The rest of paid test prep combined, over 60% of students who take the SAT are now uh, engaging with this. But What's been really cool is that we've been able to start doing efficacy studies in ways that would have seemed like science fiction uh, even 10 years ago, where the PSAT, which roughly 80% of American students take in, in 10th or 11th grade, when many of us took it, it was just kind of this random test. And If you did well, you might get into some scholarships or whatnot, but it was kind of a random test. Now, when students take the PSAT, when they get their score, they're essentially invited to go into personalized practice, where if they click a link, it syncs up their College Board accounts with the Khan Academy accounts. And then we're able to use the PSAT as diagnostic for personalized learning. So we, the the software in Khan Academy knows, hey, you, you know this type of math problem, but this type is difficult. You're comfortable with this type of reading comprehension, but this type is difficult. And then we can do weak point training. And what's really cool is if a student gives permission, we can then track their progress from the PSAT through Khan Academy to the SAT and see and, and learn about efficacy. And what was really cool is the first study we did like this was with 250,000 students, uh, which is two or three orders of magnitude larger than most education studies. And we saw that 20 hours of practice resulted in twice the expected gain that you would see from 10th grade to 12th grade. And we didn't make it as public, but it turns out that it keeps going. There are students who, who spent 30, 40 hours, which isn't a lot if you're thinking about over a year and a half or, or two years, and they saw multiple grade levels of improvement. And so here are just other um, efficacy studies that have been going on. I just mentioned about the SAT one. We did a big Idaho study where we saw uh, the students who completed, who completed their coursework or in parallel on Khan Academy saw 1.8 times as much gains. There's this study in Brazil where when the classroom swapped out one class period a week for personalized learning, they saw 30% more gain uh, than, than expected. And so you can imagine, just you know, you saw a little bit of video footage of Brazil before, and then I just mentioned Bra- the Brazilian efficacy study. Most of what I've just talked about is 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 the is the developed world, the English-speaking world. A lot of y'all might be wondering, what about the rest of the planet? And these are all pictures of Khan Academy being used in, in various parts of the planet, and, and they're all cool stories, uh, but probably the neatest one is in the top right there. Uh, you know, I used to give talks like this and say, who knows, maybe one day it will be used in Mongolia. Just imagining like the furthest place on the planet. And then, a few months later, I got an email from Mongolia. And it was from the young girl in the top right. Her name uh, was Isaiah. And she was 16 at the time. And she wrote, uh, you know, I've been using Khan Academy. Uh, it's really valuable. And she had a link, which was a, kind of a video testimonial. And I click on that. And she talks about how much she enjoys it. And I immediately assumed that she must be middle class or upper middle class. Her English was quite good. She clearly had access to the internet. But then I read the text of her email more closely, and it turns out that there was a group of engineers from Cisco Systems who were using their vacation time to go to Mongolia and set up computer labs with internet in orphanages. And what you see in the top right, those are the orphan girls using Khan Academy, and, and Zaya was one of those orphans. And that by itself was like a, kind of a mind-blowing concept to me, but what was even cooler is, over the next two years, after Zaya graduated from high school, she became the top contributor to Khan Academy in the Mongolian language. So she started becoming the teacher for her country, uh, uh, starting off as a, as a 16-year-old orphan. Another fascinating story that came out about a year and a half ago, uh, the, and I, I, I came into the mix. Well, it, it, it turns out about seven years ago, uh, there's this young girl, Sultana, she was 13 at the time, Taliban takes over her town in Afghanistan and forbids all the young girls from going to school. And I mean, it's, you know, they're threatened with violence, acid burning, I mean, horrible stuff. So Sultana doesn't go to school. She's lucky enough that her brother-in-law sees that she's bright and gets her a computer and, and an internet connection. And so she uses that computer, but, and she had, you know, ma- most of her day was household chores and cooking and cleaning, but she, wh- whatever time she had, she would stay up in the middle of the night, she wanted to teach herself English. She teaches herself English off the internet, which is a little bit scary, but it, it, it worked for her. And then she, she was obsessed with learning English and learning more. She told a family member who was going to, to Pakistan, hey, can you get me some reading material in English? And so he gets her a Time magazine in English that happened to have an article about Khan Academy in it. And so she's like, this is what I need. And so she spent every free moment she could on Khan Academy. And she went from, essentially, not even a middle school level, more of an elementary school level of learning, going all the way through trig, calculus, statistics, physics, chemistry, biology, et cetera, et cetera. She did the SAT uh, SAT preparation. And then she's determined she wants to become a physicist. And she wants to become a physicist and study in the United States and do physics research in the United States. So she says, for step one, I have to take the SAT. It's not offered in Afghanistan. So she smuggles herself across one of the most dangerous borders, 30-hour journey into Pakistan just to take the SAT. She does surprisingly well for someone who is self-taught in not only the, the subject matter but in English. She does well, and then that's where I find out about her because she was pen pals with an American student who was helping her learn English. And, says, have, you know, and, and then I say, wow, this is incredible. I started, we have to figure out some way for Sultana to come. We're having trouble. Luckily, someone hears about it and eventually tells Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times. And he writes, uh, if you show the slide, he writes this, this uh, op-ed, Meet Sultana, the Taliban's worst fear. And because of this, she's actually able to get political asylum uh, in, in the United States. And as we speak, she's doing r- physics research with one of the a Nobel Prize winning physicists from MIT. So it's, So uh, you know, uh, let's see the next slide. And so you can see here, you know, these are screenshots of, of all the various international portals. There's over 30 of these now. And so you can imagine international is, is, is a pretty big deal. And just to get a sense of, of what at least the videos feel like internationally, and remember, we're much more than, than the videos. I'll show you this montage.
0: Me commis dos cuartos de pizza.
1: L'hypotenuse commune, OK. She disse Block a armadura
0: do bloco estava na que
1: isso. P. é que a
0: fazer so interesting and funny make more
1: lessons I watch that when I get lazy That's, uh, so. So here are just more pictures of of students around the world using Khan Academy. And you know, whenever we see pictures like this, and when I say we, Khan Academy is much more than me now. We are over uh, uh, 150 people based in, in Mountain View. We've had actually tens of thousands of people volunteer to help translate videos, to translate our, our website into other languages, uh, uh, pe- volunteers around the, the world who act as ambassadors to school districts. And, uh, uh, and what, I, what I tell everyone, and, I, and, and, and 300,000 people give to Khan Academy every year, You know, average donation size, $20. And what I tell all of them is, it feels like we're at a special moment in history. Uh, and, and to, to, to kind of help you know, put that in context, I like to give a little thought experiment. If you were to go back in time uh, to uh, Western Europe 400 years ago, you would have seen that about 15, 15 percent of the population was literate. And I suspect that if you went to someone who was literate, say a member of the clergy, and you said, what percentage of the population do you think is even capable of reading? They might have said, well, with a great education system, maybe 30 40% is even capable of reading. Well, you fast-forward 400 years, we now know that that would have been a wildly pessimistic prediction, that pretty close to 100% of the population is capable of reading. But if I were to ask all of y'all a similar question, what percentage of the population do you think is capable of understanding quantum physics? What percentage of the population do you think is capable of writing the next great novel? Uh, What percent of the population is capable of being the next great entrepreneur or finding the cure for cancer? You might say, well, today, that's kind of sub-1%. But maybe with a great education system, that's maybe 5%. But what if that's just based on by the same similar blinders from experience that we have that that member of the clergy would have had 400 years ago? He didn't see people really go beyond what they were doing 400 years ago. And we, our experience is we see, wow, most people are hitting walls in an algebra class. And so yeah, they're never going to understand quantum physics. Or they're hitting a wall in genetics class. Yeah, they're never going to find the cure for cancer. But what if that has nothing to do with their innate ability? What if that is more about they were accumulating these gaps as they were pushed ahead, and at some point those Swiss cheese gaps be- become debilitating? And we've all felt it. We're like, hey, maybe I should have reviewed what I was, I was doing last year, the year before, or wherever else, or maybe I don't even know my gaps. And I'm becoming more and more convinced, and all of our teams, and we're seeing it in the data, that if we let students learn at their own time and pace, if we let them fill in those gaps, that it's actually most people can learn most of these things. That, you know, the number of people who could push the frontiers of physics, not only could be 5%, 10%, I suspect it could be 50, 60, 70, and maybe over the next few decades, it could approach 100%. And it's interesting that this is happening now because, you know, 30 years ago, this would have been a nice to have. Like, okay, Sal, if, what's the, you know, we don't have jobs for 100% 100 of the population to be entrepreneurs or to be finding cures for, for cancer or whatever else. But what's happening, you know, I think half the the presentations, the panels at at places like the the festival are talking about what's happening to the structure of society. We're coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which was structured as a pyramid. And in that pyramid, you needed a large base of labor to work in the factories. The middle level of the pyramid was you had kind of an information processing class. Those were the white-collar jobs in the the office buildings. And then at the top of the pyramid, you had kind of the owners of capital and the creative class, the the researchers, the the artists, uh, the entrepreneurs. But we know what's going on. Automation is collapsing those bottom two classes. But at the same time, we're going to have all this extra, extra productivity. And so where does it go? Does it just funnel to the top, in which case we'll have a, a not-so-stable or happy society? Or do you have to do some dystopian, massive redistribution? Or do we try to go for the utopian, which is actually try to invert that pyramid, where you get far more people who can actually participate at the top? And if we do that, and it's not going to happen overnight, but I think it's actually going to happen over the next few decades, I think it'll be an exciting time to live. We'll have more cures for cancer. We're going to push the frontiers of physics. We're going to have more art, more science, uh, amazing companies that we wouldn't have thought of, more innovation. And, and, and just at a, at a values level, this thing called education that has always been scarce and expensive, it'll be just a lot more like, like clean drinking water or, or shelter and just a fundamental human right. Thank you. We have time for questions. I'd love to take, yes. Is all of this done online or do you go into high schools? Online is where all of the tools and all the content are, but... As I mentioned earlier, like we don't view this as like, hey, you do this instead of high school. The ideal scenario is that this is done in conjunction with a physical school. So we do have a team that's going to districts, going to different schools. to Like a Long Beach, in Cal- in, which is a, a part of you know, greater LA, that's like a major district that we've been working very closely with. Uh, Detroit, uh, uh, Chicago public schools, these are all Orlando, Greater Orlando public schools, these are all major districts that we've been working closely with to understand how it can be better leveraged inside of schools, but those aren't the only ones. I mean, you saw there's, I think, 50,000 students in in Brazil using it in classrooms. We have, we're working with ministries of education in India, we're working with ministries of education, the minister of education in in, uh, Mexico and in Peru, so we we we're um, For us, it's both. The tools we're creating are virtual, but we're, we're trying to figure out how they can best be leveraged in a physical environment. How do we get this into one of our high schools, like we're in Louisiana? Yeah. Oh, we're in Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana. Three four. Oh, Shreveport. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's the the you can, one. I wouldn't be surprised if the math teachers or the very the science teachers already know about it, and so. There might be a couple of blockers, there might be technology access. That's something that we've seen improve dramatically over the last um, five years. Uh, but, you know, so anything you could help there, if there's local corporations who can help out there, that'd be huge. Um, sometimes it's, it's just building awareness. You know, even if, even if they're not able to make the shift to use it in the classroom immediately, but it would be great if folks like yourself were to advocate for that. Uh, there's ways to, you know, how can you let, at least let the parents and the students know that it's available for them that it's you know this is a free tutor it's it's not there's no catch here there's no ads there's no upsell it's free it's nonprofit um, so yeah i think it's it's building awareness you pushback, yeah, pushback you get pushback a pushback you know i i think i think the only time we get pushback is when people misperceive what it's about and and that's happening a lot less now than in the early days i think in the early days if you go back to to 2011 2012 uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the press likes to write these kind of hyperbolic headlines, which we were beneficiaries of, but they would, you know, they would, they would write, um, uh, you know, the, the, my favorite one was, was uh, 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 the, the math of Khan, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm a Star Trek fan, so I, I enjoyed that one. Um, but, it, it, you know, Khan Academy is going to uh, disrupt education. And, and you can imagine those, those types of headlines, if you're a, if you're a teacher, who's doing the, the heavy lifting in a classroom, working with 30, 35 kids at a time, you're like, hey, I'm suspicious of that. That's virtual, but that's not what we've ever been, we've said, no, we want to empower you, the teacher. And so the more that we've gotten that message out, we, we've, we, we, we've, we haven't faced that kind of like, hey, what, what are you trying to do here? So, uh, so, so far, so good. Most of the teachers, you know, I've given talks like this to groups of 10,000 teachers, uh, and they, 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 it, it really speaks to them, because in ed school, they're taught about differentiated learning, but they're like, it's unrealistic for me to do it with 35 kids unless I have some type of tools so that I can actually let them run
0: uh, all at their own time and pace. It, it seems to me that um, your idea of the Swiss cheese is, drives a stake in the concept of social promotion. You, you recall that a few years ago, 20 years ago, the idea was continue to promote students up through their grades to protect their self-image and self-esteem.
1: You're exactly right. I, you know, this, I, I've, it, I remember, like, I had a family member whose child was, you know, like, uh, what was struggling and the school was recommending that, that he repeat. I think it was like fifth grade or something. But then, like, the trade-off was, but he's big. And so it's like, oh, maybe he should move ahead subject matter-wise because he's big. Uh, um, and, and, and so you have these two like, vastly different dimensions that are getting conflated but, but there was a point there because there's all sorts of self-esteem stuff if you're the big kid and you're with, still with the fourth graders and, you're, uh, and, and so it was this conundrum but that conundrum all came from this idea of you know, this kind of factory model of education where you're moving all, everyone at a set pace but what if someone doesn't master the con or what if they're nowhere close to mastering it what if they're getting, you know, getting 40s and 50s do they just stay on that, tread, on that kind of conveyor belt to move forward to protect their self-esteem and to kind of graduate them on time? Or, or do you do, do the opposite? And it's horrible. You know, if you look at the, one of the biggest problems, some of you all might be aware of this, if you talk to most governors in the United States, their top, one of their top problems is underfunded pension programs. But then usually two or three will be the fact that 70% of students who show up at community colleges have to take remedial math. And remedial math is a euphemism for sixth or seventh grade math. And, and so what that tells you is these kids were just being promoted year after year. We're spending, you know, if you just, and the same thing is actually happening in their other subjects too. But if you just take math as a lens, you know, most, most states are spending t- ten dollars to $20,000 per student per year. Math is two to $4,000 of that. So you're spending, you know, $20-something thousand on that student. And then that student, it, it was all for naught and then the community college has to go do it again, and, then that's, and that's the best predictor of being uh, getting debt, and then not finishing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I think it, what we're trying to advocate, whenever I can talk to a secretary of education, a, a governor, a minister of education, it's like, hey, how can we move to a competency-based system? Uh, we run a little lab school, and there we promote the, the students. There's two different dimensions. There's their independence level, so that's how well can they self-regulate themselves, their maturity, um, their ability to work with others, and then separately from that is their academic progression. So you could have a student at a relatively low independence level, maybe seven years old, but he or she might be racing ahead in algebra. And you might have a student at a high independence level who can self-regulate and all that, who might be 13 years old, but he or she might need to remediate their fourth grade math, and that's all good. But that would have been impossible 30 years ago if we didn't have the tools to do it, or if you didn't you know, hire a personal tutor for everyone, which would have been economically um, unrealistic
0: you blow me away. <laughs> Has the Secretary of Education from the United States ever approached you for any help? In any... <laughs> no, no, it's. Um, and my my second question. Is, yeah, this is two part. Um, who uses your services? Is it Americans, or is it what percent are coming from the United States? Yeah.
1: So the second is it. Uh, so, so right now, we are 60% North America, 40% rest of world, and it is, right now, 80% English, 20% other languages, but the other languages are growing two, 300% a year, so we expect that to grow much faster. In terms of Secretary of Education, you know, this is, it, it is interesting, you know, we, we don't want to get complacent about, because it seems like so many things are, are politically charged these days, but... You know, I have to. I, I haven't. I haven't talked to Secretary. De, I can never know. Is it DeVos or DeVoe? I don't know. Uh, but but I, I. 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 I haven't engaged with her as Secretary of Education. But it's actually the first time I met her was actually in the the the, 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 the cafeteria here. I think it was at the Aspen Ideas Festival uh, four years ago, where she was trying to do some initiatives in Michigan. And you know, at Khan Academy, we stay out of kind of the the hot, the, the the issues of you know, school pro-vouchers, anti-vouchers, class size. You know, we're like, y'all figure that out. Whatever the resources, we want to help you optimize that. And what we found is whether it was the Obama administration or the Trump administration, I've given essentially this talk uh, to uh, the Democratic uh, House Caucus and to the Republican House Caucus, and it resonated equally with both sides. And so I I think, you know, these ideas of mastery learning, competency-based learning, uh, pathways for either to supercharge your classroom, or for anyone on the planet to be able to recognize their their potential. Uh, I think this speaks to, to to almost everyone. I mean, it's hard for people to argue with a, you know a true meritocracy where you're really uh, giving people the opportunities to 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 prove themselves. Uh, but no, we haven't interfaced we haven't interfaced yet. And the U.S. is interesting because. The, at the federal level, there actually isn't a lot that, you know, the federal government can kind of create incentives for states to do things, but most of it is really at the state and the district level. Hi. Uh, first off, I just want to say thank you because I used your videos a ton in high school and they were extremely helpful. But now that I'm in college, I was wondering, uh, perhaps a bit selfishly, if you had any intention to move into university <laughs> curriculum and start really <laughs> focusing heavily on that. Yeah, so what we've, we've, been, we, uh, we've been calling it, we've been doing K through 14, which is like the K core of college. So we do have all those core entry-level subject, you know, the calculus, statistics, the college-level uh, physics, chemistry, biology. We're actually just launching a government and politics, American history. I mean, you saw some of Justice Kennedy who's in the news a lot, but he has a, he's made a video on Khan Academy, uh, Walter Isaacson you saw, doing some stuff on, on, on the Declaration of Independence. Um, so yeah, we're going, and those are all college-level courses. Um, And you know, our our view is if students even really, if you really master those foundational courses in college, you actually are educated. You know, I think most of us would have trouble to even tell you what college courses we took, much less what we actually learned in them. But if you actually learned, really mastered that, you know, those first two years of biology, chemistry, physics, history, government, writing, literature, whatever it might be, you are quite educated. And so we kind of see is that's what could take people to be really, you know, allow them to go to grad school, allow them to, uh, you know, we're not doing the LSAT prep for lawyers of the future, uh, allow them to be uh, just, you know, great citizens in, in a society. Uh, so so with that, unfortunately, I would love this conversation. It looks like we're all out of time, but uh, thank you so much.
0: Sal Khan is founder and CEO of Khan Academy. He also founded Khan Lab School, a nonprofit laboratory school in Mountain View, California, where he teaches seminars in the humanities and sciences. His book is One World Schoolhouse. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute the aspen ideas festival programming team is kitty boone keelene bretman katie cassetta libby franklin brett howley jamie miller and me our music is by wonderly i'm trisha johnson thanks for joining me